Hello, and welcome to the New Mexico Autism Project podcast for educators. These podcasts, as well as our online training series, have been developed by the University of New Mexico Center for Development and Disability in collaboration with the New Mexico Public Education Department as a resource for educators who would like to learn more about evidence-based practices for working with students diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. We hope that you enjoy this series, and if you have any questions about these resources or how we may support your school district through the NMPED Autism Project, please contact me, Patrick Blevins, at the email address shown on the slide or call the UNM CDD at 505-272-3000. Good morning and welcome to this series of podcasts on evidence-based practices sponsored by the New Mexico Public Education Department and presented by the Autism and Other Developmental Disabilities Division of the Center for Development and Disability. Uh, I'm Marianne Trott, and I am hosting these podcasts uh, for the New Mexico Public Education Department. Before we get to the content of each podcast, it's important that you know what evidence-based practices are. An evidence-based practice is an instructional or intervention procedure or set of procedures for which researchers have provided an acceptable level of research that shows the practice produces positive outcomes for children, youth, and or adults with ASD. And that's from the Autism Professional Development Center. Um, So there are lists of evidence-based practices from the Autism Professional Development Center um, and also from the um, Autism Project that the research has to then be integrated with clinical expertise in the context of patient or student characteristics, culture, and preferences to make decisions about the evidence-based practices. And that's from the National Institute of Health. So what we're depending on is, of course, the science and the research that is constantly in progress and uh, changing in response to the data. And we're also uh, responding to the clinical expertise of the practitioners and also, you know, what families know about their children and even what children know about themselves. So that's kind of an introduction to evidence-based practices, and I would certainly uh, encourage you to to look more into that if you're not familiar with it. An important evidence-based practice, evidence-based intervention for almost all children with autism spectrum disorder is functional communication. All children need a way to communicate that allows them to get what they want or need in a way that is acceptable and understanding and understandable to the wide world beyond school, therapy, and home. And, you know, as we're talking about functional communication, you may recognize that all of us need functional communication. We do all need a way to communicate that allows us to get what we want and need in acceptable and understandable ways. And certainly um, (laughs) many of us have been working on that for a long, long time. Um, My longtime friend and colleague, Marcy Laurel, is joining us today to talk about functional communication because it is one of her passions. And so, Marcy, will you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what led you to think as deeply as I know you do about functional communication? Well, thank you, Marianne, and good morning. I'm so appreciative of you asking me to come talk about this topic that 
is near and dear to both of our hearts. I'm Marcy Laurel. I'm a speech-language pathologist at the Center for Development and Disability. And indeed, as you said, Marianne, over many, many years of practice, my constant passion has been in the area of considering language, language development, um, conversation, communication, all in the context of this ability for every individual to use communication skills in order to be able to get what they need and want, and also to connect with other people in the way we all desire. So I especially appreciate being asked to talk about this topic and really have been thinking about in preparing what did bring me to a space of thinking so deeply about it, if I, um, as you put so kindly. So as a speech language pathologist, I became intrigued really early on by this big idea that we're here to talk about today and that you helped me understand over so many years, that all behavior is communication. So that's something we talk about a lot now, and I think a lot of people have heard that, all behavior is communication, but this isn't something I was taught to think about in my own training, as you know, right? There was getting behavior sorted out, hopefully that was someone else's job, and then there was teaching communication skills, and that was my job. So over time, as I started to understand this big idea that all behavior is communication, I started to realize that this is part of my job, of course, to consider how to teach individuals to get their needs met using not just appropriate communication skills, but communication skills that would work just as well or hopefully even better than challenging behaviors have been working for that individual over time. So in some sense, as we've talked about so many times, we're shifting the focus from a list of skills that we need to teach one by one to teaching an individual to meet their own needs. So I think as we start out talking about this, Marianne, functional communication training sometimes can seem very complex. It's an evidence-based practice. As you just encourage people, there's lots of places to go into the evidence around how functional communication training is implemented with fidelity, but really we begin with asking ourselves if each individual has a way to say what they do want, and just as importantly, what they do not want, because we all have this very basic right. So in that sense, functional communication training, which can sound kind of formal and maybe intimidating, can be seen, in my view, as a simple act of kindness and respect. And so I hope we can use that idea as the foundation for our conversation moving forward this morning. Oh, that is, that is just great. And, I, and I've heard you talk about it many times and, and so eloquently and, and agree completely. One thing I did want to just um, enhance a little bit because I, I think it is so easy, um, you know, when we have wonderful specialists that work with children to sort of compartmentalize what we do with, with children, particularly children with autism, it is a social communication disorder. And therefore the speech language pathologist plays a you know, pretty he uh, heavy role in uh, teaching communication skills. Um, but you had said that teaching communication skills is not just your department, or you, know, you, you alluded to the fact that it used to be that that was your job. Um, so tell a little bit more about how that sort of gets infused in the classroom, because you know, especially now, children often get just a few short minutes of um, speech language pathology a few times a week, which is extremely important. However, how is it that, uh, that we sort of infuse that information information into the classroom so that everyone is teaching communication skills. Oh, I'm really glad that you brought that up, Marianne, because absolutely, right? So 
in, initially, in the beginning of my own professional journey, that is what I thought. It's kind of embarrassing to admit that now, right? When it came to communication, then I would be the person who would teach that. And of course, that's a crazy nutty idea on so many levels. But when you're talking about functional communication, the ability for all people to be able to express what they want and do not want with words, with pictures, with gestures in any way, right? It has to be everybody's job, right? Because it's the essential of what we're trying to teach in an academic setting in the classroom every minute of every day so that this foundation of having these skills of communication to apply to academic learning, to apply to social interaction, to apply to learning the kinds of things that are going to bring a meaningful quality of life, it's everybody's job. And we're all in it together. And really, I think you would agree, Marianne, that in this way, responding to challenging behavior is also everybody's job. It turns out it's not just one person's job because these things are all a part of that individual's movement forward. Thank you. I mean, that is exactly so and, and what we've, we've talked about. And it's just uh, often hard for teachers, often, and we are talking primarily to teachers today, uh, to feel like they have the qualifications uh, to, to teach functional communication or any kind of uh, functional communication or any kind of communication skill, uh, especially, again, to kids with autism. And that's kind of where we come to what we've talked about in terms of listening to what children and adults really are telling us. And, and many of the teachers that are listening to this also work with other adults and other teachers. And so, um, you know, we're going to try to, to um, work through them uh, to help to be consultants to the other people in their schools or in their settings. So we have talked about to listening to what children and other adults are telling us not only with their words, their vocalizations, sign language, picture communication, assistive devices, but also through their behavior, as you mentioned, or the way that they interact with their environments. Many people think of behavior in terms of good behavior and bad behavior, uh, but as we have talked about many times, we're going to talk about uh, behavior in terms of what it means in the way that people interact with their environments. So how exactly do you listen to children in your clinical practice, as I know that that's part of your uh, career, and also in classroom or school settings where you have also done an awful lot of work? Well, let me say first that having had the privilege to work in classroom settings over the past 40 years, I have learned more from teachers in the classroom than anyone has ever learned from me. And so I'm glad you brought up that issue that teamwork, you know, the teamwork about all of us working together, but it is the teacher who is facilitating all of this learning. So for all of you who are listening, my deepest appreciation and respect. When it comes to listening to children, it's a tricky piece, right? Because this is very intriguing. What happens when individuals learn to clearly communicate what they want and do not want, or they're doing it through some behavior we consider to be challenging, right? And now we have to listen, right? But first we have to figure out what they might be trying to tell us. And so for individuals, for students for whom, you know, communication has been a challenge maybe over their, certainly over their whole life, we have to think and listen deeper sometimes, right, to try to figure out what is it that they're trying to tell us. And so many people who are listening are familiar with the concept that we start to pay attention 
by looking at what is this challenging behavior, what does it look like, right? And then what happens right before, right? Is the student given something to do they don't want to do? Has something of interest got their attention? Are they hanging out? And in that moment, they don't really have that much to do, right? It could be a myriad of possibilities. What's happening right before we see that behavior? And then what is that behavior exactly, right? Are they just flat out refusing to do what we ask? Are they throwing stuff on the floor, running around the room, bothering other students? acting out in some aggressive way, what is it the behavior that we see? And then we ask ourselves, what happens right afterwards, right? Because now we're starting to dig into their perspective. We often talk about perspective taking. We want students to be able to take the perspective of other people, but we are trying now in this process to take their perspective. So right after that behavior that we consider challenging, do they have a timeout? Does somebody give a long explanation, or a kind and you know caring explanation of why they shouldn't do that thing? Is there just general excitement in the classroom? You know, could be anything, right? So, what I'm wanting to get at is, as we start to listen, we're trying to figure out what is the child or the student trying to communicate. What is it that that's showing us that they want or do not want? And then here's the hard part. I think it can seem very counterintuitive to now have to take it seriously, right? So a lot of times we'll, we, we want kids to communicate, right? So they're upset or something's going on and we might say, use your words or pictures or gestures or whatever, right? But let's be honest with ourselves. Sometimes what we really mean is use my words, right? I want you to want what I want you to want. And so we've talked about this so many times, haven't we, over the years, how we fall into this trap of, we mean to be listening to what they're trying to tell us, but we're also trying to manage a whole lot going on in the environment. And what we would actually like is if they just wanted what we want them to want. And that, alas, is not one of our choices. So often we've joked, right, with each other, there's kind of good news and bad news in functional communication training. The good news is we can teach these functional communication skills. And I promise anybody who's listening, we can teach these skills using well-researched techniques for teaching. But what we can't do, the not as good news, right, is we can't change a person's motivation. We can't make them want what we want them to want. We might be able to change up the environment, the setting, the work, the, you know, things that we can control to make it more likely that they're going to want to do what we want them to do. But we will always have to honor the motivations when people are telling us what they want and do not want. And that's part of the listening. Well, and that just brings me back to thinking about, you know, what you said in terms of, of respect. And it is really difficult to um, respect, um, you know, a big old temper tantrum happening right in the middle of right. your circle time. It's really uh, difficult to respect when somebody is, you know, running out of the room and disrupting the entire uh, rest of the class. Those are things that are really hard to do. Uh, but I think the, the point is the point that, you know, in part that you're making is taking the time to really think about those things and to see them for what they are, which is, you know, communication, right. uh, rather than just, you know, thinking of them in terms of the gosh awful disruption to our classroom uh, it is really a helpful thing. And that does need to be looked at individually. And it doesn't mean that, you know, what's happening with the other kids doesn't count. Uh, but it does mean that in order to get to the, uh, the root of 
of the problem and to be able to change or, you know, to make the behavior more functional, we do have to uh, participate in that listening. And then, you know, you also said I to take it seriously. And that is really hard as well, because, you know, as we've mentioned many times, sometimes behaviors are pretty frightening. Um, but I, I think it has been... Um, my experience as well as yours that, you know, just kind of taking a quiet step back and letting whatever happens, you know, play out in the safest way possible. And then really taking a close look with uh, the input, not only of, you know, whoever the classroom teacher is, but, you know, anybody else who sees this kind of behavior or who has experience with the behaviors, including families. So um, could you talk a little bit about, I mean, you did talk about the gathering the information in terms of what is happening before and what is happening, what, what the behavior is and what happens after, um, but talk a little bit more about um, the really the, the community of people uh, that can contribute to this information. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I want to say, too, Thank you for saying, you know, when there's a big disruption in the classroom, I would never want to imply that, okay, well, now let's think about how we're going to teach this functional communication skill. And in fact, this is a really important part of what we're talking about, Marianne, because I'm not talking about teaching as part of a crisis moment, right? I'm talking about taking the long view after we've gotten through the crisis and then teaching these skills as part of a planned lesson. So again, it's the teaching and practicing as part of a planned lesson, and that's going to involve everybody. And thank you for bringing in the family's perspective and how they're seeing this happening at home and the teacher in the classroom and everyone else in the school setting who knows and is working with that individual. So very, very much a team effort to start to think about what kind of functional communication strategy is going to work and then how to teach that student to use that skill. I, I appreciate that. And it, as, as often happens when you and I talk, uh, just the uh, things uh, kind of uh, evolve in terms of the things that come into my mind. And I appreciate the point that you, that you made in terms of uh, you're not teaching in a crisis moment. Um, and so one of the, in terms of, of those crisis moments, one of the first things that you need to do is maybe figure out a little bit how to avoid them. And that often helps uh, in, in determining the function as well. Um, but then also you talked about teaching in the long view, and I know that this is uh, difficult, particularly for, for new teachers um, or you know, people who have uh, less experience with individuals with autism, is uh, thinking about how small you have to break down the skill, the itty-bitty pieces. And that's different uh, for every child, um, but how, do, how, do, how is it that we uh, can break down uh, skills into itty bitty pieces. Um, and if you'll just talk a little bit about that, and then we will, I promise, move on to what we had talked about. Oh, absolutely. But I think it's really quite connected, in fact, because first, we're going to have to figure out, like, what is, so we're figuring out what the child's trying to communicate, right? And then what would be a more appropriate or useful communication skill to replace that challenging behavior? So before we can even think about breaking it down into small steps, we have to make sure we know what that is and can define it, you know, very objectively so that we can look at the smaller pieces. So I think it might be useful to like think of some examples, but first defining what it is. If I want to teach a child to reach towards something that they, well, 
Yeah, like I want to teach a child to reach towards something that they want, right? So let me just give an example. I'm thinking about a girl that I knew in a classroom who would go stand by a cabinet, right, and, and scream, basically. And so the cabinet contained snack foods, you know, staff did a great job of figuring out this is often happening around a time that she might be hungry, right? But she would get to that cabinet and just scream. So I think this, I hope this is a helpful answer to your question about breaking it down. So what we had to figure out is when that, first of all, no, we, yes, we want her to stop screaming, right, for sure. But what we also want her to learn is how is she going to indicate to us what she wants when she gets over there? That's the biggest problem. We don't even know what it is that she wants. We just know she's standing there and we're presuming that she wants something from the cabinet. So what we did in this situation is just what you're saying, Marianne, break it down. So first, we wanted to teach her to go over there and maybe even just look towards what she wanted. So again, not in the crisis, but as part of a planned lesson. I'm at the cabinet, I open it, and I put a couple of things in there. One thing that I know she really likes and one thing that I'm quite certain she isn't interested in. And now I'm going to teach her just to glance toward that thing. I'm not saying she doesn't have more skills than that in another situation, but requesting in that moment is really hard, right? So then maybe we move from glancing toward it to reaching toward it. Then maybe we move from reaching toward it to pointing to it. Maybe we eventually teach an object exchange, a picture exchange. So does that get at a little bit what you're asking, Marianne? Oh, yeah, Just that is little steps. But first we have to know that the screaming, we hope, is going to be replaced by her power in being able to indicate what it is that she actually wants. We see this so much, don't we? Where individuals maybe have some skills on board, but when individuals with autism spectrum disorder sometimes just have such a hard time using that skill to clearly ask for what it is that they want. So I hope that's a good example. Uh, that's a great example. And, and the other thing that, you know, sort of popped into my mind, because I do remember this particular incident, uh, was th also thinking about, well, you know, our, figuring out, yes, she's standing there screaming because she wants a snack, but it's not snack time. And well, we can't, yeah. you know, we can't start, you know, letting people have snacks whenever they want to. But part of that breaking it down is to be able to first break down, you know, what is it that she's asking for? And then, you know, moving itty step by itty bitty step to toward, you know, that snack time, you choose what you want. But that is a long way down the road. And it does take time and effort. And the first thing is to uh, teach children that all you have to do is use your communication and look what happens. You get what you ask for. And then we work on, you know, asking for at an appropriate time. Right. And, and that's so important, Marianne. And something else that, you know, over the years has become so clear to me is that when students have a history, like let's take this little person that or a big person we were just speaking about, of not being able to effectively communicate their needs. Sometimes just acknowledging that we get what they want can help so much, right? Haven't we seen this so many times? So this is getting in a little of the touchy-feely mode, but it's really true because if you have felt for, you know, 12 years that nobody can ever understand what it is that you want, sometimes just an acknowledgement, we know what you want, and then starting to teach some strategies for showing 
how that person can understand that that's not an option in that moment can be so effective. So that's going a little farther down the road that maybe you meant to, but let's remember that piece of empathy and how much it means to any person, you, me, the students we work with, anyone, to feel that their communication has been understood can be almost as important sometimes as getting that need met right in that moment. Well, and, and I think, and we, again, have talked about this many times, that part of helping teachers to understand uh, what it is that their students are communicating to them is also thinking about their own experience, because, you know, many adults have certainly had, had the experience of not being listened to or not being heard. Uh, and so we really are, you know, thinking about it in a different way in terms of uh, working with challenging behaviors, um, but it doesn't mean that it isn't an experience that we all can share and, you know, hopefully empathize with to Absolutely. an extent and draw on our own experience of, oh, what made a difference for me? Is somebody right. listened to me or, right. you know, I, I found the right way to say or something like that. And, right. and, you know, while that is diving a little deep, <laughs> it really is important to remember uh, that, you know, at least, you know, for, for most of us, children with autism are first of all children and people uh, that we need to, to think about in terms of the needs that we all have. So I, I really appreciate uh, your, your thought about that. And the examples are great. So, um, and going on to something else that might require another example. So I'm going to kind of ask this um, next question in two pieces. And I, I know you have that there for you. So in thinking about students in classrooms, what is your experience with, first of all, determining what kind of functional communication is going to work best? Okay. So let's go ahead and, and start with that part, and then we'll go on to the second part of the question. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. So um, what's going to work best? It's, this is the most important question. And so the, one of the primary things we have to consider here is this skill has to be very easy to use. That means that it has to be accessible in good times, in hard times, at any time. I often think about and talk about kids with autism spectrum disorder. It can seem like this person has a box full or a pocket full of skills, but that aren't accessible to them a lot of the times, right? So maybe they've been heard to use a sentence or they've sometimes um, used an assistive device, but when it's the moment of great need, that's not getting put into place, right? So, or maybe the child, as in a child that I saw just recently, um, has tons of labels for things and loves to label the things that interest them, but when they want something or do not want something, those words are not available. So it has to be easy to use in all times, good and bad. And here is the key that can be so hard. This replacement, we could call it a replacement behavior, right? We're teaching a communication skill to replace a challenging behavior. It has to work better than the challenging behavior. And sometimes challenging behaviors can work really fast, right? If you, you, you're aggressive in the classroom, you have to be removed. We have to keep everybody safe. What behavior is going to work, what communication skill is going to work just as well or even better for that individual for saying what they want and do not want? And then here's another thing that can be tricky. It has to be something that almost anyone, anywhere can understand. So a trap we sometimes fall into, and I have fallen into, is teaching a skill 
that only the nearest and dearest can understand. So maybe, for example, a child learns some manual signs, but it's kind of an approximation of the sign. So it doesn't look exactly like the sign as, as somebody else might understand it. Plus, a lot of people don't understand manual signs or sign language. Um, it has to be something that isn't just a certain gesture or vocalization or even words that kids really enjoy that don't make perfect sense to everyone else in a given situation. So idiosyncratic language, for example, or language that that child used repeatedly and then their nearest and dearest learn to understand what they mean by that. So the three keys, easy to use, works better than the challenging behavior and something that almost anyone could understand at any time. So that's a tall order. And that's why it takes a lot of thinking and planning before the fact. Well, and another thing that you have uh, taught me too is that what a, a person is able to do under the best of circumstances is often not what a person is able to do under the worst of circumstances. Yeah. And so you always do have to consider, um, you know, what's going to happen in the most difficult circumstances and have available for that person to use, say, for example, uh, you know, a child who can usually uh, use verbal communication, uh, but under very difficult circumstances or when they're upset, they may have to fall back to a picture or a, a, even a written word or something that um, is a little bit easier. Um, so do you have any examples of that that you, can, that you can share with us? Well, I think first of all, it's a reminder of what you said earlier, that that's true for all of us. Like who hasn't been in a you know, fight with their partner or been at work and having a conversation with their boss and just can't find the words to say what it is that we wanted to say. So it's something that we're all familiar with. Or even for me today, this is a conversation we've had a million times, but I have a lot of notes right in front of me because this is a, to some degree, high-pressured situation where I am so wanting to be sure that I say the things that will be helpful to our listeners. And so, you know, I've got that support for me. I might not be looking at it that much once we get into it, but I have that support. And so similarly for individuals who struggle with their communication um, in classrooms, it can mean, as you just said, using a picture, even for a child who is verbal in order to be able to say that they want something, often in order to be able to ask for help or learning a gesture that says stop or no, right? Learning to shake their head no, learning to um, have a script, right? Or something written down that reminds them what they want to say in that situation. Often for individuals with autism, it's something visual, a visual support to remind them and su or support them to use that skill that we've taught them to replace a challenging behavior. Well, and I know I'm uh, just bringing up another thing that I know that you um, often teach uh, students, particularly, you know, those that do maybe have a little bit better verbal language, uh, but have hard time accessing it in the moment, um, uh, is to just teach them, give me a minute. And, right. and so that they can have the time to pull themselves together and say what they need to say, but that, again, the people in their environments also understand that they, they're not just being stubborn, they're not just being non-communicative, they, they just need a moment. That's it. And who among us couldn't benefit from using that strategy just a little more frequently, me at the top of the list? So <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So and then so, we want to think, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Marcy. I was just going to say, then we want to think about how we're going to then 
teach this, right, as part of a planned lesson. Is that where you were going? That is exactly, because that's the second part of this question, is how then do we teach students to use that communication instead of the behaviors that we've talked about? And again, um, you know, included in that uh, is, you know, how do we break it down into the smallest components necessary, not possible always, but, but necessary. Um, mm -hmm. And any and, and examples that you have of that, because I know you have so many wonderful examples. Yeah, so we talked about, you know, the, the young lady who was standing by the cabinet screaming. So that's an example of somebody who has pretty limited communication skills in that moment. But this kind of work can apply to to anybody, right? So let's think of an example of someone who has a lot of language skills. I'm thinking about a guy, a boy in middle school, who would yell out a joke in the middle of a lesson, just all the time. So he got this idea about jokes, and he would yell out a joke in the middle of a lesson. Well, here's the thing. When we determine that kids are seeking attention, that students are seeking attention, I feel like attention is the bad rap motivate. It gets a bad rap as a motivation for behavior, right? That's the bad motivation. So if we say he just wants attention, we're saying that's not okay, right? But of course, it's fine. He wants attention. That's one of the reasons any of us use communication. So in the case of this kiddo, not only was he yelling out jokes in the middle of a lesson, but he would repeat the jokes, right? Because he had autism and he tended to be repetitive. And this idea that humor is really connected to novelty or something unexpected happening, you know, didn't really connect for him. So this is the situation we were in. So here's what we figured out. We wanted him to understand, you know, we wanted him to start understanding some of those kinds of things about humor and how humor is used. And we really wanted him to stop disrupting the class by yelling out jokes in the middle of a lesson. And so here's what we did. We got a little joke book together. So, so a, you know, somebody in the classroom staff got him a little joke book with different jokes, right? So that was one thing. So the jokes could, he could have something in his hands. Then he had a schedule that showed him that twice in the day, this worked well for him, after math in the morning, after a math lesson, and after a language art lesson in the afternoon, he would have everyone's undivided attention to tell a joke from that book. So think about this for a minute, right? It's pretty cool. It was so much fun because different practitioners, you know, different team members on that team could use this in so many different ways. To, to get the idea of non-literal language and humor with somebody's, you know, kind of focus and to have him practice using a variety of ways of getting other people's attention with somebody's focus, but to really replace the challenging behavior, which was disrupting with these yelling out of jokes, he got what he so wanted, which was everybody's undivided attention. And then, Marianne, what I love about this, when I remember it, is that everybody started to look forward to it together, right? Because after math, you knew this guy was going to tell a joke. And if it was a bad joke, then you'd have everybody kind of groan over it, but not groaning at him, but groaning with him, right? Or if it was a good joke, everybody would laugh and everybody would look forward to it. So I think that's an example for a verbal individual who really struggles to know how they can get the attention of their classmates and the teachers around them. It just was a win-win for everybody. People loved it. 
that's uh, such a great example, uh, and I really appreciate that. But I, I'm gonna I'm gonna um, kind of push a little bit on that particular example. So yeah, uh, we have determined that he wanted to, he would yell out the joke because he wanted attention, um, and certainly there are appropriate uh, ways to get attention in the classroom and related to the lesson. So let's say that he um, or, uh, you know, a different kid, uh, whatever, would uh, just yell out a question or an answer to, uh, you know, something the teacher posed or something um, or, and just got so that they were constantly interrupting. So mm -hmm. let's and, and let's assume the replacement behavior is just raising your hand because that's what you sure. want to do in school. Um, and so let's say this student did learn to raise their hand, but they just did it with nonstop, whether there was a good reason for it or not, because the function was to get attention. What would we do with something like that? Well, I think that's an interesting point because the function might be to get attention, is likely to get attention in that case, but also there's a certain amount of impulsivity there as well, right? So then we're going another way, perhaps, and we're wanting to teach that student that they maybe only have so many times they can raise their hand in a given lesson. So, and, you know, I'm, of course, this is something that teachers know far better than I do, but if you're taking some data and seeing how many times that hand's going up, because as you taught me years ago, Marianne, it can feel like it's every second, but maybe it's not every second, but maybe it's way too many times, right? So getting some data, how often is that hand going up? And then asking that, you know, creating a uh, system with that student where they see they have so many tickets for raising their hands. They give over those tickets every time they raise their hands. You've made sure you gave them enough tickets so they can be successful. And then there's some kind of reward associated with having a ticket left at the end of the lesson. So you're teaching the behavior, hand raising. You're practicing it in a variety of settings if that's what you've determined is the replacement behavior, and then you're giving them a lot of opportunities for success. And little by little, of course, less opportunities to raise their hands until it comes to an amount that feels manageable for that teacher and for their peers. Do you think that makes sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And, and I think, you know, our listeners are probably getting an idea that, you know, what seems like to many people ought to be a pretty simple thing. Hey, you know, raise your hand only when you have something to say. Yeah. Uh, is really a, a very complex and important skill, uh, and but it is also a lifelong skill. It's a skill for independence, and it's a skill that's going to enhance quality of life. Um, and I'm, I'm going to just briefly ask you about uh, one more behavior that I know is really difficult for teachers is uh, kids that just uh, get up and run out of the classroom. We call it elopement, but really what it is is running away, running out of the classroom or into the parking lot or into busy streets. Uh, you know, you and I have been involved in several situations in which that was the behavior. So if you could just, you know, for a few minutes, take uh, uh, to that as an example and uh, talk about how you might teach a functional communication skill? Well, that's a tricky one, right? Because running away, running off, running around, those things can be for any purpose, right? Maybe I want to escape the work and I just don't want to do it. Maybe I something caught my attention out the window and I want to see it. Maybe um, I'm feeling uncomfortable in my body in some way or just love the feeling of running. So it really will come back again to the initial listening to try to figure out What's behind that? What is that person trying to get or get away from in order to be running around? So I think we would have to use examples for each one would be quite, quite different, right? If that child sometimes just 
you know, loves to run to the window and look at the construction vehicles out the window, maybe they have a certain number of cards that allow them to ask to get up and look out the window. If that person just needs that activity, you know, intermittently, then of course we want to provide some kind of non-contingent access to movement throughout the day. Um, if the person really likes to, you know, the feeling of other people chasing after them, right? And that really becomes the thing, especially when kids are heading out the door, running into the parking lot, then we need to figure out, again, is there a way to um, teach them and practice, 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 a stop sign on the door, responding to a command or, or a, I hate to use the word command, but a directive, right, to stop, to sit, whatever's going to be safe. Is there also a way for them at the appropriate time to learn to tap somebody on the shoulder and request that chase game, which you and I both know has been such an effective strategy so many times. Oh, there's appropriate time and place that I can get somebody to chase me and it's not running out into the parking lot. So once again, it's so complicated because we have to figure out what that person is after. And, you know, in an example that you and I have used many times, I just, but, but I always remember was a, a kid who left the cafeteria during, you know, a time when um, there was, you know, ketchup on the menu and, you know, just walked out of the cafeteria. You'd call that elopement, right? He left the group. That's the major crime of an elementary school student. But remember this, Marianne, he was going to his classroom to get scissors. So there were a bunch of adults around, kids modeling what it, looks like to ask for help with your ketchup but the only thing that kid could think of was to get out the door and go get scissors so once again what are we going to do we're going to break it down with a verbal child with perfectly you know on target academic skills in early elementary school but for him we had to teach him not in the crisis of the ketchup but in the classroom as part of planned lessons to ask for help over and over and over. And in his case, breaking it down to starting with a picture card. Might seem counterintuitive for a kid who can talk, but he needed to really get that feel that, oh, I just asked for help, then I get help. I asked for help, then I get help. This is cool. Before he could start using his words to initiate asking for help. So it really does come back to our ability to listen and try to figure out what that person is trying to tell us. Absolutely. Thank you. Those are great examples. And then I, you know, the other one that, that kind of um, sticks in my mind because you were talking about not being able to change the motivation is just to be able to learn to um, ask for or just take a break because all of us have, you know, been known to in the middle of a meeting, not Zoom meetings probably, but in the middle of a meeting to uh, go out and, uh, you know, um, talk on the cell phone or, you know, just go, you know, stand outside and get some fresh air and then go back to the meeting, not because we had any particular need, not because we really needed to go to the bathroom, but just because it needs some, everybody needs to take a break on occasion. And that's okay. And, you know, hopefully the eventual thing would be able to be able to do that independently. Um, but again, it's, it's something that, that has to be taught and broken down into really little skills. So I appreciate your examples. Oh, and thank you for bringing that up, Marianne, because the way our conversation has gone, we haven't talked that much about those protest behaviors or not the what I want, but what I do not want. And so thank you so much for bringing that up because yes, indeed, right? We all do it and nobody ever asks us if we really needed that bathroom or if we didn't. So we have a lot of leeway as people outside of school to do what we need to do. And we need to make sure that our people that are in our care have a way to say what they do not want at all times. 
for their safety and for their happiness. Absolutely. Um, and so that kind of brings us to, we just have a few minutes left. And so before we finish, is there anything that we haven't talked about in relation to functional communication that you really, really want teachers to understand? Well, I think we've covered a lot, but I, and we've already said it, but I guess I want to say one more time that one of the hardest parts of teaching functional communication skills can be just honoring what kids have to say, especially when you're the teacher in a classroom and you have so much responsibility and responsibility for so many. So I want to honor how challenging this is and hope that we can bring the team together, but really be able to first and foremost honor what we're learning about what that child is trying to communicate. And also, Marianne, you alluded to this, but let me say it very explicitly. We are understanding, right, that we need to teach individuals over time to wait for the thing that they want, to tolerate doing things that they don't want to do, and sometimes just simply to comply with what we ask them to do. So I don't want to walk away with this kind of like touchy-feely, we're just going to go with whatever they want, because you're going to have mayhem, right? And I hope the listeners aren't thinking, you know, what planet are you on to be talking about all of this? We are going to teach those skills. There are ways to teach those skills. It's just the foundation of understanding, respecting, and teaching more effective communication skills. Does that make sense? Oh, that makes great sense. And okay. uh, that's always something that you want to leave at the end is, yes, we are not recommending chaos. We are recommending a very careful and structured approach to teaching people to be uh, independent and um, really as um, competent um, members of a community as we possibly can. Absolutely. And then just one other thing, this has just come into my mind as I've been preparing for this, Marianne, so I hope I have time for just a little personal story that I've been thinking about. When my older son, Keenan, who's now 31, was um, a preschooler, you know, he was, as you remember, he was tested in the three and four-year-old program for getting services. And the primary difficulties he was having at that time were fine and gross motor skills, sensory um, processing, and um, motor planning. And so anyway, take him to the evaluation, he's doing his thing, you know, evaluating is hard, you have to always get around to something hard for kids to do. So the evaluator brings out the materials, right? Um, and there's a bunch of stuff, objects on the table, and he's supposed to manipulate them in ways that are hard for him. And so, you know, he starts with, quote, unquote, behavior, right? So he's not paying attention anymore, he gets under the table. And then part of the test kit, remember me telling this, I think you probably remember me telling you this, Marianne, oh, yes. there was a penny in the test kit. So he takes the penny and he puts it in his pocket and he won't give it back. So I'm the mom, I'm kind of mortified, here he is behaving poorly in this testing setting. So we get in the car, my kid is sitting in the back. My kid happened to be very verbal. So he had the gift of words. And I said, Keenan, you know, in my own frustration, but also trying to be like a good mom, I said, you know, if somebody asks you to do something that's hard for you, you could say, this is hard for me. And you might remember what he said, because I've never forgotten it. From the back seat, I heard, what would they have done differently? And, you know, for the past 25 years, I have, I have asked myself that question. He was lucky enough to have the gift of words so he could formulate this question. We must ask ourselves if we're going to teach individuals communication skills and when they use them, what are we going to do differently? It's profound. So functional communication training, as it turns out, takes skill, takes practice 
And you know, it also takes courage and it reflects kindness and it reflects respect and it reflects the work of a team to come together and figure out what's going to create a better quality of life for that individual. So thank you so much for asking me to talk about this. You can hear, our listeners can hear that I am really passionate about it and I so appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much, Marcy, for uh, sharing your experience and, and wisdom with us. As you know, there is no one I'd rather talk to about functional communication, and, and I know our listeners have really benefited uh, from hearing this. So as you, if you as a listener have additional questions, uh, questions about functional communication, uh, please be in contact with the school team at the Autism and Other Developmental Disabilities Program from CDD, uh, and uh, there is contact information. There are also some uh, references uh, to go along with this podcast uh, that you may want to access. And again, thank you for joining us, and thank you, Marcy, for uh, sharing your time and your expertise with us.